morning, everybody. Woohoo! Lots of happy faces here. And I'm sure there are many of you online as well, so thanks for joining us. Uh, I'm going to jump in. I got a couple stories about my son, Jay, this morning, so hopefully that's all right. He's 12. And I was thinking about him this week. Uh, I think this is true of most kids. There's probably a few outliers. A few of you might say, well, I wasn't like that, or I got one kid that's not like this, but Jay certainly fits this bill. He operates with the mindset of, why bother with a little if you can have a lot? So Jay loves to ask for more. He has no problem asking for more. He feels free to ask for more all the time. And I've learned that it creates a variety of responses within me. Most of the time, it drives me crazy. Partly because his desire for more is usually for things that aren't the best for him. So he wants more sugar and more pop and those things. It's like, no, man, no. But, and we're going to have a couple, a couple themes that kind of run through the sermon this morning. They all kind of go together under the rubric of discipleship. But, but this is, I'll just plant this seed now and we'll kind of come back to some of these ideas. But I partly don't like him asking for more because of what I learn about me. <laughs> a lot of times my frustrations with him asking for more has nothing to do with him. It has everything to do with me. Uh, I have someone who has spent my life having some difficulty setting healthy boundaries. I don't like to use the word no. It's typical for a lot of pastors, actually. So I don't like to, so when my son asks for something and I need to tell him no, it makes me uncomfortable. I don't like being, do you like, I don't like being uncomfortable. So I don't like that. And I'll be honest, as a dad, there's something when, you're, when your child comes to you and asks for something, and maybe it's something he wants that I can't provide. It makes me feel insufficient as a father. I mean, it's a good reminder that I will never be everything my son needs. That's for Jesus and Jesus alone. But Jay will ask for more, and I'm just learning that sometimes it's not about him at all. It's about what's going on inside of me. And we'll talk about what it means to pay attention to that as we go through this morning. But I will say, and this will get us to our text this morning, other times, maybe when I'm at my best, I love that Jay is comfortable asking for more. I do. I'm like, good for you, buddy. You know you want it, and you're going to ask. And I'll tell you no, and you'll ask again, but at least you know, and you're going to keep asking. Sometimes it's good. When I think about that in terms of our relationship with Jesus, I think we don't ask for more enough from Jesus. Not more of what we think we need, but more of the kingdom of God. More of Jesus, more of what we really need. And I, I hope as we go through this morning, and maybe even by the time we get to the end, I hope there's something in you that stirs, that says, yes, I want more of that. You get to a place where you're like, God, I want more of you. Jesus, I want to know you more. I need more of your kingdom in my life and in my world. I need to think differently. I need more of you, Jesus. That's really my main hope for this morning. And we're going to be in the Gospel of John, but I did a little work this week. All the Gospels uh, have a different way of introducing Jesus in terms of his public ministry. And I told you throughout this series, we're going to be in the Gospels for a year, and I want us to appreciate the brilliance of these Gospel authors. They are intentionally writing the story of Jesus in a way that is meant to help you grow to be more like Jesus. They are discipleship manuals. And each author has a different emphasis. It's such a gift. I hope you appreciate the gift that we have of having four Gospel accounts. So I spent a little time looking at this, but Matthew begins his gospel. He introduces us to Jesus' public ministry in chapter 5 with the Sermon on the Mount. It's unique to the gospel of Matthew. 
uh, Matthew. And, and again, it's fun to get into this. Why does Matthew have this? And why did Luke leave that out? And why when Matthew and Mark tell the same story, why does Mark end this way and Matthew? Well, they're all have, they have emphases that they're doing. And really, the introduction to Jesus tells us a lot about what is being emphasized. So we get, we get the Beatitudes. We get the Sermon on the Mount. We get in Matthew a new Torah. A new Torah. Jesus is fulfilling the Torah, but he's, but he's saying things like, you have heard it said, but I say to you. We, we are learning what we talk about here across you a lot, the way of love, the way of Jesus. Matthew is very intent on that. Mark, though, Mark introduces us to Jesus' public ministry as Jesus cast out a demon in a synagogue in Capernaum. And if you read through Mark's gospel, it's, it's, it's fitting. Mark is about the coming of the kingdom and in essence, he's saying it's time for the overthrow of Satan's kingdom. It's time. Jesus is here and demons are being cast out. <laughs> it's time for the overthrow of Satan's kingdom. That's a big part of Mark's gospel. Luke's gospel, which we will look at this next week, Jesus is going to announce the Lord's favor in the synagogue in Nazareth. That's how Luke introduces us to Jesus' public ministry. And this morning, we'll look at John's introduction, the wedding miracle at Cana. Four different approaches, and I don't know if this was, but, but I was thinking through just this discipleship question, and I had four questions just surface through my, just, just kept coming through my mind this week. And so I'm going to do this sermon a little bit differently than I do sometimes, where we're going to read through the text, and I'll say a few things about what we read. But then primarily what I want to do is, with the text in mind, answer four questions for us this morning. What do we learn about Jesus? And these are great questions. When you're reading the Gospels, you should ask these all the time. What do we learn about Jesus? What do we learn about the kingdom of God? What do we learn about ourselves? And what do we learn about discipleship and following Jesus? What do we learn? So those are the four questions we're going to answer this morning. If you want to turn in your Bibles or follow along, we're in John chapter 2. And I'll say a few things, even out of the gate. I'm reading from the New Living Translation. I used to read from the ESV, but I needed a new Bible, and I got this one. I I think I told you guys a lot of my professors, several of my professors in seminary were on the translating committee for this. And so I have an affinity for it. I was excited to read it. But what, the way they went about writing the New Living Translation is they tried to make it really readable for the modern reader. And so they're trying to honor the text but make it really readable. And I love it because sometimes you, people will come to me and say, it's, I have trouble reading the Bible. I just don't get it. I'm like, well, of course not. It was written in another language on another continent thousands of years ago. It's going to be a little bit difficult to read. And you've got to honor that. It wasn't written a week ago. But the authors of the New Living Translation are writing it in a way to try to help you understand, just get into the story. But as you read through, it's not on the slides, but if you have a New Living tra- Translation in front of you, you will say it, be- it begins with the next day, but there's a little asterisk there. And the asterisk, having talked to some of my professor friends who were on these translating committees, the asterisk usually means that the committee had a debate about that. <laughs> that, that there were a couple different ways they could translate it, and they, couldn't, they weren't unanimous. And so they, the committee agreed on that to kind of honor what they were doing with the translation. But they don't want you to miss what's behind that in the Greek. And so there's an asterisk that drops to the bottom and says, on the third day. So we're going to start with that. It, John says, on the third day. And it's a wedding. And I think I've said this before. I didn't know this. I didn't grow up in a Jewish family. But it's Jewish culture for many to get married on a Tuesday. We often get married on Saturdays because it's convenient in our schedules. In this series on the calendar, we're talking about how do we arrange our time? Well, what's convenient? The Jewish, they're walking out of a Jewish worldview. And if you read through the creation account, the seven days of creation, on the third day, on Tuesday, God creates and says it's good. 
And then it's the only day where he creates again and says it's good again. It's the only day in the creation account where God says it's good twice. It's doubly good. It's a double blessing. So Jews get married on Tuesday because it's a double blessing. I love that. That's awesome. That's being shaped by the biblical story. That's living it out. So I think there's some of that going on. I think we just get you into the worldview. But also, and you might not notice this on your first, your, first, your first introduction to Jesus, you get the Gospel of John, you read it. On the third day, you just keep reading. But if you go back and you read the Gospel of John a second or third time and you read on the third day, you're like, oh, John's doing something. Even at the beginning, he's getting me to think about the cross and the resurrection. This whole thing is driving to that. The cross is the ultimate expression of who God is. But it's not separate from the ministry and teachings and, and miracles of Jesus' life. So much of what Jesus is doing helps us understand what is happening at the cross. And so I just want you to see the, the whole gospel story is really important. So on the third day or the next day, there was a wedding celebration in the village of Cana in Galilee. And Jesus' mother was there setting the scene. In verse 2, we'll come back, we'll end with this actually. And Jesus and his disciples were also invited to the celebration. I think that has layers of meaning. Verse 3, the wine supply ran out. We'll talk about that as well. The wine supply ran out during the festivities. So Jesus' mother told him, they have no more wine. My translation, your translation may be different because this is another place where the Greek is kind of tricky. But dear woman, that's not our problem, Jesus replied. My time has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. And his mother told the servants, do whatever he tells you. This is one of those places where if you read the Greek, it kind of reads almost harsh. It's, it's quite literally, what is it to me and to you, woman? That's kind of exactly what Jesus said. So, so commentators kind of wrestle with this because it seems like Jesus is being uncool to Mary, but we know Jesus can't be uncool. And, it, and then it seems like Mary doesn't even, she's like, well, do what he says. It's like, it's, and so they kind of say it's kind of mysterious, and they kind of wrestle with what's going on here. But, but I think it's more of a minority position. But, but I, I was reading, and one person explained it this way, and I think this actually makes a lot of sense. Because the Greek is very ambiguous, and Jesus is saying, what is it to me and to you? He might be saying, well, don't bother me. It's not, it's not my time to be revealed yet. But he also might be saying, yeah, it's not my time yet. I know where this is all leading. It's leading to the cross. I'm, it's going to be a different time then. It's going to be a dark time then. But it's not that time yet. It's not my time. It's not, it's not my time yet. So what's, what's a little bit of wine? That's easy for us to do. I can handle that. It's no big deal. I'm not in a rush. I'm not in a hurry. Let's, and Mary says, well, do whatever he says, right? I mean, that, that makes a little bit more sense of the story, but you can choose to read it how it makes sense to you. Verse 6, standing nearby were six stone water jars used for Jewish ceremonial washing. We'll talk a little bit about that. Each could hold 20 to 30 gallons. That's a lot. It's a, a large volume. And Jesus tells the servants, fill the jars with water. And when the, water, when the jars had been filled, he said, now dip some out and take it to the master of ceremonies. So, so the servants followed his instructions. And when the, when the master of ceremonies tasted the water that was now wine, not knowing where it had come from, though, of course, the servants knew, he called the bridegroom over. A host always serves the best wine first, he said. And then when everyone has had a lot to drink, he brings out the less expensive wine. But you, you have kept the best wine for now. Which we'll talk about because the bridegroom's probably like, what are you talking about, man? We'll talk about that. And then it ends this way. This miraculous sign at Cana in Galilee was the first time Jesus revealed his glory. And notice, we'll talk about this as well, his disciples believed in him. I think that's important as well. 
But it's the first sign. John, actually, if you read through and study his gospel, he kind of orients the way he tells the story around seven, you could call them clues about who Jesus is. Seven signs, seven ways that the glory of God is being manifest among us. The seventh sign being the resurrection of Jesus. John's gospel, in a sense, plays out like a treasure hunt as you follow these signs to see these ways that the transforming power of God's love bursts into our world. So that's our story. It's a beautiful story. It's a masterful story. And I do want to let, I think, the way John is telling the story with great intention and great thought, I don't think he's just firing it off. He's thought about how he's telling the story craftily. He's using space wisely. He's using words wisely to teach us about Jesus, but disciple us. It's a discipleship story. So question number one for us, what do we learn about Jesus? Well, in his ministry, we, I mean, we see this again and again, but we see this here. Jesus will deal with many kinds of problems, won't he? And even from the very beginning, this first sign of his revealing of his glory, we see this deep sense of compassion Jesus feels anytime he comes across somebody in need. And we also see the crazy, unpredictable, unexpected ways that Jesus meets those needs. Right out of the gate. That's what we see. This is what Jesus does again and again and again. We get a deep sense that Jesus delighted in people. He was the kind of person you wanted at a party. He was fun. And, I mean, if if the story plays out the way it does, because running out of wine, these were often big celebrations, multiple days, and there would have been great shame on the family for having the party end early. And Jesus keeps the party going. It's cool. I mean, he just seems like a good guy. You want to be around him. And, and, he, and I think as we get to know Jesus too, it's clear that he wants us at the party with him. It's a big deal to Jesus. Come, sit at the table with me. There's a hint of that. I don't think it's the main point of the story. I think the main point of the story has to do with Jesus being the best in abundance, which we'll talk about. But, but there's a hint that Jesus doesn't take just any water and turn it into wine. But he takes these ceremonial jars, which either could have been used for the washing of hands and faces, but they're so big, they were probably used for what they call mikvahs. If you ever go to Israel, there are these little, like almost rectangular pools that you just kind of walk down into and out, and they were filled with water, and there was constant ritual cleansing. And again, Jesus is coming to do new things. He's providing new wine. And we've talked about this. He's kind of moving things from the temple to the table. But if you had lived in those days and lived in all that constant purification, it would, have been, it would have felt a lot like if you want to get near to God, you're always bathing and never clean. <laughs> it's just part of the routine. You're always bathing and then you anything out, you're just not clean. You've got to bathe again. And you're, as soon as you come out, you're going to bathe again. You're always bathing and never clean. And Jesus is redefining what it means to draw near to God. And he's telling all these parables about how it's like a party. And, and, he's, and it's like sitting at a table with your best friends and you're enjoying food and drink and you're just, you're loving being together. You're fully accepted. You're fully enjoyed. You're fully seen for who you are. You have nothing to fear and nothing to strive for. I mean, Jesus is removing all hindrances that are keeping you away from him. It's no longer showing up and wondering if you belong or if you fit in or if you're good enough. Jesus is like, no, come on. You even show up and the table of your friends is packed and they see you. And this is Jesus like, oh, we'll make room. We will squeeze. We will smash our legs together so that you can sit with us because we want you here. I mean, Jesus delights in people. 
The second thing we learn, and again, I think this is the main point, just even with the way that John is telling the story, we learn that Jesus is the best, that Jesus is amazingly awesome, that there's no one else like him. The steward's humorous comment to the bridegroom is ironic because he says something that is not true in the sense in which he means it. The, bri- the bridegroom has not reserved the best wine until last. But what, and this is, if you read through John's gospel, this is happening all the time. He's, he's a creative writer, he's doing this, and he's, he's telling these stories with a deeper significance and a deeper meaning. And the main point is this, it is God who has kept the best wine until now. That's the main point. This first miracle at Cana is the beginning of God's revealing his best for the world in Jesus. Jesus is the best. Jesus is that longed for, we'll talk a little bit about the the longed for Messiah. So now we have arrived at the messianic fulfillment. The time has come. And God's gift of eternal life, which maybe you would say is the greatest gift he's given, well, it's being passed out to people. God saved the best for last. The wine that Jesus provides is better than what was preceded. We could say in the story of God's people that there was good wine. There was good wine. There was good wine. Moses was good wine. David was good wine. But if you were with us in our previous series, we talked about exile. During the exile, all all the good wine dried up. There wasn't good wine. (laughs) But now Jesus has stepped on the scene and it's a return from exile. He's the good wine. He's the best wine. That's what the story is saying. And you keep reading through John's gospel. John keeps reminding us he's the best. There's no one like, you will never meet anyone like Jesus. There's no one like Jesus. He kind of even wraps this up with a little bit of a hint towards this wine theme at the end of his gospel. All things are pointing to the crucifixion and resurrection. That's the core revelation of who God is and his heart for us. And in John chapter 19, we read this in verses 28 to 30. Jesus knew that his mission was now finished. His hour had fully come. This was his time. He's on the cross. And to fulfill scripture, he said, I am thirsty. And a jar of sour wine is sitting there. So they soak it in sponge and they lift it up to his lips. Now imagine, sour I don't know that I've ever had sour wine, but from what I've read, it, it sounds like it's like vinegar. So imagine it's not like today. It's a really hot day and somehow you're walking or running or biking by my house and you're just dripping with sweat and you see me and you're like, hey, I'm thirsty. And I'm like, I got something for you. And I run inside and I get a glass of vinegar and I bring it out to you. That is mean, right? But that was mean. What they did to Jesus is mean. But you understand this is what makes Jesus so unique is that he takes the worst wine and gives us the best. You understand? That's how it's possible. Jesus takes the evil of the world on the cross. He takes our sin. He takes everything. He takes it upon himself and he recycles it into love, mercy, and forgiveness. Jesus takes the worst and he gives you and I the best. That's just because he's so compassionate and loving. There's nobody like him. John wants you to see that. He's unique. It's Jesus. Keep, Keep going. Next question. Well, what do we learn about the kingdom of God? Well, again, it's not unique to this story. He's going to tell a lot of parables, but we learn, I mean, the fact that this is the first miracle that John records. The kingdom of God is like a party. The kingdom of God is like a great banquet. And the new wine really does, I think, for John, he he sees it clearly, it means the messianic banquet has started. Most of the miracles of Jesus involve somebody dying, somebody sick, somebody blind, and he heals. Here, none of that's happening. He's protecting a family from shame, but really it's just, no, the party's begun. 
In the Old Testament, the abundance of wine was often symbolic of God's favor. In a ruined vineyard, in the absence of wine, symbolized the absence of God, as the prophets talked in their poetry. And the prophets, and I love to talk about these poetic imaginers, these, they, they, would, they would write poetry of deep imagination, and as they would dream about this day when the, when the kingdom of, Kong, of God would come, when the Messiah would come, they would dream, they would use visuals of vats overflowing with wine, of mountains dripping with sweet wine. And maybe the most famous passage is in Isaiah chapter 25. Read this. In Isaiah 25, this is the picture Isaiah gives us. In Jerusalem, the Lord of heaven's army will spread a wonderful feast. Second service, you're closer to lunch, you're getting hungry, right? A wonderful feast. Tap into that hunger. And it was for all the people of the world. It's not just a banquet, it's a delicious banquet with clear, well-aged wine and choice meat. Except for you vegetarians. It'll be all veggies, whatever you need. It'll be great. But it's more than a banquet. Isaiah doesn't stop here. This is where the poetry begins to expand. Then he will remove the cloud of gloom, the shadow of death that hangs over the earth. Isaiah writes, he will swallow up death forever. Exclamation point. That's good news. I want to be a part of that banquet. No more gloom, no more death. What else? The sovereign Lord will personally tenderly, gently, compassionately wipe away every tear from your eyes. Every tear. Just every, everything that the broken world has done, God's just like, got that. No more fear of death. Let me just heal you. I'm here for you. He removes all insults and mockery against his land and his people. The Lord has spoken. Now that is the prophetic dream. And Jesus is saying, well, it's here. I mean, it's not, just, it's not just a way. He's saying, that's why John includes it in his gospel, it started. Against the background of the Jewish image of the Messianic banquet, this large quantity of excellent wine Jesus provides signifies the abundant and enhanced life, the extravagant fullness of life that Jesus came to bring. No more death, just life. No more tears, just joy. It's as if Jesus is saying, I am the Lord of the feast. And in the end, I come to bring joy. That's the reason my calling card, my first miracle, is to set everyone laughing. So get ready for the eternal feast that is coming at the end of history. And those who believe in me will have within them a stream of joy, a foretaste of that joy now, today. A taste that will be profoundly consoling and refreshing in the hardest and driest of times like living water. That ultimately is what I've come to bring. So what do we learn about the kingdom of God? Well, it's abundant and it's joyful. It's a party. It's satisfying. It's wonder-inducing. It's awesome. In fact, what's being said here is at the end, at this banquet, the reality will be so astonishing. The joy will be so incredible. The fulfillment will be so amazing that the most miserable life will feel like one night in a bad hotel. It's just going to be awesome. Jesus is the source of living water, or in this story, we could say of new wine. The more you drink of Jesus, the more fully satisfied you are with love and joy and peace and purpose and deep soul rest. In this Jesus wine, there's no hangover. 
You can enjoy the party and there's no regrets the next day. Fun without all the guilt. Now, I want to say something here as it relates, because I'm talking about joy, and I know sometimes when we talk about joy, there's always, I don't know, a handful, a bunch of people who are like, I'm I'm struggling. I know I'm a Christian and I'm supposed to have joy, but I don't feel joy today. And so I thought it'd be a good way to talk again about what we're doing with this series. It's a training tool in discipleship. So last week I had fun with being like, when we were in Advent, we didn't expect God to do anything. We just, we were waiting on God. We weren't waiting on our circumstances to change. We were waiting on God to come and we were trusting that when God comes, he'll do whatever we need. But now that it's Epiphany, I said, well, God's here and he's revealing himself and we expect big things. But I want to remind, it's not like every year you practice the calendar, well, God makes you wait in December and then he shows up in January, right? It's not how it works. The point is, it's a tool and we practice because you know there are different seasons of life and there are going to be some seasons where you're waiting and you're, so don't be afraid. Oh, I'm waiting on God, but that's normal. Oh, man, I do this every year. I wait in Advent. This is, I'm training. I'm, I'm used to it. And there are going to be some seasons where there's new wine and there's lots of joy and you're just celebrating. And you're not going to be, but I, I, knew, I knew this was going to happen because we practice, this is what, we practice this every year. And, and there's a sense of that with joy and lament. I, I, I don't want you to feel like, oh, I'm in a season where there's not a lot of joy. I'm, I'm lonely. I'm isolated. Every, everything I hear is hard news to stomach. Well, We talk a lot about lament, too. Lament's really important for your soul. The Bible teaches us to lament. If you're in a season of lament, it's okay. But don't lose hope. Don't despair that joy isn't coming. Because here's one of the radical things about life in the kingdom is somehow lament and joy can go together in a way that sadness and happiness can't. There's this deeper joy that comes from Jesus. So let me say it this way, and then we'll move on to our next question, but... You don't have to be outwardly joyful all the time. You don't have to be. But I do believe that as you walk with Jesus, there will be a deepening of the well of joy in your soul. As you walk with Jesus, you will, because because the Messianic banquet has begun, you will experience more and more joy. Because Jesus will satisfy you in ways that nothing else can. He's awesome. There's no one like him. He's the best. (laughs) He turns ordinary water into new wine. Well, what do we learn about us? Well, verse 3, again, if we were reading straight through in the Greek, verse 3, we go from Jesus being invited to, I mean, just kind of -of matter-of-factly, John says, well, the wedding ran out of wine. And and in the Greek, it just, there's an and. It's not a but or a however or although or you may not have known. It's just like, yeah, and the wedding ran out of wine. It's just kind of -of matter-of-fact. And one commentator says this, the use of and at the very beginning of the sentence in verse 3 almost suggests that for, for the writer, it is normal for crises or emergencies or at least for problems like this to arise in life. In other words, in our own lives, the extravagant wine of wedding celebrations will always eventually give out and Jesus will always be equal to the crisis. Some of what John is teaching and how he's crafted his story. In other words, you and I will have our own situations where the, where the wine runs out. Where we are confronted with our own lack. Where we don't have enough. But Jesus is always up to the crisis. And even the way John writes the story, I mean, it's not an accident. John seems to intend Mary's present tense command, right? She's present, do whatever he says. He seems to intend Mary's command to the waiters to be a command to you and I. Well, do what Jesus, do whatever he says. Whatever Jesus says, do it. You'll be fine. Just do what he says. It's still good today. 
And so I was thinking through this and thinking about all, I mean, one of the authors says, as many whatevers as the, there are as many whatevers as there are readers of the Gospel of John. We all have our own out of wine moments. And so I was thinking about this, and I happened to be reading a book at the same time. I'm still working my way through it, but it's a book on emotions. I talk about this frequently, but I, I really do believe that the discipleship journey involves learning about Jesus. And the more you learn about Jesus and what it means to truly be human, the more you learn about yourself. And the more you learn about yourself, the more you'll be surprised, the more you awaken to who Jesus is. The more you are amazed at his love and his mercy when you come to terms with who you are and that you're a sinner. <laughs> But the more you learn about yourself, the more you can learn about Jesus. But then the more you learn about Jesus, the more you can learn about yourself. And it just, that's, it's just growth. That's maturity. That's just what happens. And so I've been trying to read other books about learning about myself and finding language. And I picked up this book because the author makes a statement that I think is pretty true. Most adults only think through their emotions through three lenses. Mad, happy, or sad. <laughs> we learned it in our basic reading books and we've not advanced much. I'm either mad, I'm happy, or sad. And the author's saying, well, there's a lot more emotions than that. And, and to not be aware of that is just putting yourself at a disadvantage. You're not really helping yourself grow. And so there's a chapter in the book called Places We Go When Things Don't Go As Planned. Places We Go When Things Don't Go As Planned. And I was really drawn to this chapter as I was reading The, the Miracle at Cana because I'm like, That's exa- you, you, you're at your wedding and you're running out of wine. That's not what you planned. So what might you be feeling? What might you be experiencing as you discover you're running out of wine? Well, the author gives a handful, but I'm just going to give a couple. The first and the one you might anticipate is disappointment. I'm going to give you, because I want to help us think through a little bit of this understanding yourself. What do you learn about yourself? Disappointment is unmet expectations. The more significant the expectations, the more significant the disappointment. I mean, it's just natural. You're going to be more frustrated about relational disappointments than you are if you get a Coke at a restaurant and there's no ice in it, right? It's just the, the, the more significant the expectations, the more significant the disappointment. But here's one of the ways the author talks about disappointment. It didn't work out how I wanted, and I believe the out, outcome was outside of my control. Didn't go the way I wanted, but the out, outcome was outside of my control. Now, the author then contrasts that with regret. I thought this was interesting because, I don't know, as I listen to the broader culture, I don't hear many people saying, I have regrets. It's kind of like cool to say, I have no regrets. And I always wonder about that because I have regrets. Why, why am I the only person who regrets anything? Why does nobody else have regrets and I do? Well, well, how do you think about regret? And this is one of the reasons why I think our culture at large is afraid to admit regret. Regret is d- different than disappointment because regret is saying, it didn't work out how I wanted And the outcome was caused by my decisions, my actions, or my failure to act. That's why nobody wants wants to take responsibility. We just want to blame. It was outside of my control. I'm disappointed. Well, we also need to be able to say, no, I have regrets. I I did some things. Or I didn't do some things. You see the difference? There's a difference. And and how you, and I'll I'll try to illustrate this as we get to the end, but, but if you don't understand what you're really dealing with, then you won't respond in healthy ways. That's part if you think you're sad, but you're really experiencing regret, those are two different responses to healing, to tend to your soul. That's part of what I'm trying to help you see. And I thought it was interesting. The author said, research shows that in the short term, we tend to regret bad outcomes where we took action. 
But in the long term, we tend to regret things that we didn't do. Isn't that interesting? Maybe that's true for you. If you are willing to admit, admit regret, in the short term, it's stuff you did. In the long term, it's things you didn't do. I think that's pretty true for me as I was thinking about it. So you might have, if you were in the wedding, you might have experienced disappointment or regret. Or, I mean, there was more, but the other two, that, two others that got mentioned were frustration and anger. Frustration is when something that feels out of my control is preventing me from achieving my desired outcome. So something that, I have a desired outcome, but something that feels like it's outside of my control is preventing, that's frustrating. But the author then again distinguishes that from anger. Both anger and frustration can result when a desired outcome is blocked. The main difference is that with frustration, we don't think we can fix the situation, while with anger, we feel there's something we can do. So again, paying attention to what's going on inside of you becomes really important because if Jesus is going to help you through it, you need to know what you're really dealing with. Now, this is going to go a little bit beyond John chapter 2, but it still relates to being in places where the outcome isn't what you desired. Um, I, I, I can imagine being at the wedding in Cana and feeling frustrated or angry or disappointed or regretful. I didn't plan better or something. But the other thing that got mentioned in this chapter that I want to talk about, because I think in our modern world of technology and leisure time, this is becoming one of our biggest obstacles to discipleship. (laughs) I want to talk about boredom. Now, maybe you can relate it to a wedding, because I've been bored at a wedding before. I don't know if you have. (laughs) I don't think that's exactly what's going on in John 2, but but I want to just say a little bit about boredom, because I I think we've got to talk a lot about this. This might actually maybe the best definition I've ever read. It's it's a redemptive definition. Boredom is the uncomfortable state of wanting to engage in satisfying activity, but being unable to do it. That's a good definition. Because you and I were made to engage in satisfying activity. And boredom is that uncomfortable state when you recognize, I want to do something satisfying, but I can't. And the author goes on to talk about how we have two different reactions to our boredom. It either drives us to lethargy and apathy... We get lethargic and even more tired, or it drives us to deep frustration. And again, context matters, and you got to pay attention. The author says, for their own, if, if they find themselves bored doing something that they chose to do, they get really lethargic, and that's when they end up just scrolling on their cell phone. That's so boring. I don't know why I chose to do this, and they just get really lethargic. And I know that's a temptation for all of us. The author said, but the flip side is I find myself doing something boring that somebody else is making me do. I get angry and frustrated. But again, a different response is to boredom. But I think it's a major issue in the discipleship journey. We don't handle our boredom well, and it prevents us from pursuing Jesus. But just examples of places we go and things don't go as planned. Now, Mary's command is pretty basic. Do whatever he tells you to do. Whatever he tells you, do it. So I think that's good work for us. But you might say, well, what does that mean? How do we do that? Well, that's where I want to go to our final question. What do we learn about discipleship? John's gospel is trying to make things simple. You read through John's gospel. He's trying to make things. He's always pointing to deeper truths, but he's trying to make it really simple. And at the end of the day, the core of what John wants you to do is believe in Jesus. And, I, and, I, and he doesn't mean like, a one, like the first time you come to Christ. He means every day believe in Jesus. 
every day trust in Jesus. I think he's saying that at the end of chapter 2. The disciples believed in Jesus, but they already believed. They were already his disciples. It's not the first time they believed, but every day we get confronted with situations where we aren't in control. Things aren't going the way we want. We get frustrated. We get angry. We get disappointed. We have regret. We get bored. What do we do? The first thing we do is trust Jesus. We trust Jesus to satisfy us, to give us life and peace and purpose. That's what we do. And I love the way John tells the story because Jesus gives instruction here, but it's really simple. It makes me think of the AT&T commercial. It's not that complicated. He says, fill the water jars, drip, uh, draw some out, dip some out, take it to the master's ceremonies. Anybody can do that, you understand? Jesus may give you a different command than he gives me, but it's going to be simple. It's not going to be complicated. It's not going to be abracadabra. Jesus' words to you are going to be good news, and you'll be able to do it. We do simple things like trust Jesus. Anybody can do it. Which made me think through, I got my, my, my one last story with Jay, which hopefully will kind of try to tie things back together. Jay's on a basketball team, and probably two weeks ago, it sounds like the team had a really bad practice because the coach emailed the next day and said, I made the kids run a lot, but here's why. But Jay came home from that practice, and I think he just took it personally. And he was really down on himself. And at first, it seemed to me like he was just down because he had a bad practice. But if you're parents, well, if you're a human being, you know that sometimes, that's what I'm trying to get at, sometimes there's deeper things going on, and we need to slow down enough to get past the surface and tend to the deeper things so God can bring his kingdom into our hearts and bring real transformation. So I try to ask Jay on the drive home, and when we get home, what's going on, but he's 12, he doesn't want to talk to dad then, right? Stop bothering. But if you've ever been a parent, you know that right before bed, kids will tell you things they won't tell you any other time of the day. So Jay's lying in bed, and he's trying to, like, I'm kind of praying and talking about it. And he says, Dad, you know, the real issue for me was I didn't play good tonight. And I just don't know if I'm the best at anything. Do you understand why that matters? Because if Jay's issue was I had a bad practice, then I'm like, get up tomorrow and go shoot free throws. But if his issue is, I don't feel like I'm good at anything. I'm not the best at anything. Well, shooting free throws isn't going to help that much. That's a deeper issue. That's a Jesus issue. That's where the gospel comes. And so I told Jay, and I asked him this week if I could share the story and if it was helpful. And he begrudgingly admitted that this was helpful to him. But I reminded him. Well, the first thing I said was, you're in a good family because your mom and dad aren't the best at anything either, man. <laughs> We're not. But I said, here's the thing. And I always remind Jay. What makes you valuable in the kingdom of God? Well, Dad, because Jesus loves me. I'm a child of God. I'm deeply loved and forgiven. Yes! Is that good news to you, Jay? Yeah, it is helpful, Dad. And I said, you know the other thing, Jay? It's one of the things we're trying to realize that the kingdom of God is rearranging everything. The way the world is currently arranged, being the best matters. But there's only one best kid on a team. There's only one first chair. There's only one best saleswoman of the year. There's only one MVP of the league in the way that the world's been arranged since Cain. But with Jesus coming along, and we talked about this last week, he's turning everything down, and we're all aspiring to be servants of one another. We're not trying to outdo each other. We're just trying to spur each other on towards love. And so it redefines how we think about best all together, right? In one sense, in the kingdom of God, there is no best. It doesn't matter. There's no status. We're just all in this together. But in another sense, if we want to talk about the best, and I told Jay this, Anybody can be the best in the kingdom. 
Because anybody can love. That's what Jesus is doing, what he's calling you to. You might not be the best salesman or salesman. You might not be the MVP, the first chair. You don't always get that. But anybody can be the best at loving. And the things that Jesus is going to ask you to do are simple. Draw water. Take it over to that. He's, he's going to ask you things. And then you can love. Because you were made in the image of a God who is love. So anybody can learn to love. We train in love. We value love. And the last thing I want to say about discipleship, and then we'll, we'll pray into this. This is, this is what we're going to do. But I, love, I told you at the very beginning, I love verse 2. Why does this miracle happen at this wedding and not some? Why does Jesus' first miracle happen at this wedding and not somewhere else? Because Jesus was invited. <laughs> if he wasn't invited, he wouldn't have done the miracle there. But he was invited. And so I'm going I'm to pray a little bit. I'm going to try to have the Holy Spirit help us kind of identify What's our situation? What's our whatever? What's our situation where it hasn't gone the way we hoped? Where we've run out of water? We've run out of wine. And I'm, we're just going to invite Jesus. We're not going to tell him what to do. We don't tell him what to do. We're just going to invite him in. That's where it all starts. We're going to trust that Jesus has this thing. That's what we're going to do. So will you pray with me? Will you bow your heads? Holy Spirit, we are. We're going we're to track through some of these things we just talked about, and then we're going to sing and praise you. But I do think, first and foremost, I do want to ask, because sometimes we're blind and we don't see and we need your help. We need your light to shine. And so, Holy Spirit, we're going to ask, help us identify where we're running out of wine, where we lack, where we have need, where we're frustrated, where we're disappointed, where we have regrets, where we're angry, where we're bored with life. Uh, Whatever you want to draw our attention to, would you draw our attention to that right now? And we're going to ask for help because... If we need to shoot more free throws, that's what we want to do. But if the issue is deeper than that, and we're struggling with our identity in you, we're not the best, we don't feel good enough, we don't feel like we belong or we fit in, we don't know how we can join you at the table, well, that's deeper. And, you know, free throws we got to take care of, but that identity stuff, we, we are going to submit to you, Jesus. So, Spirit of God, first of all, we need, to help. we need your help to show us. Take us deeper. Because, God, you want to give us a new heart. Not just new skin, but a new heart. So we've got to be willing to go deeper. See what's going on. And then, Jesus, maybe, maybe just the words are good. Or maybe we just picture ourselves there. Maybe it happens right now as I'm praying. Maybe this will happen later in the week. It'll just sneak up. At, like, like, like our kids when... It's got to be right before bed before we open up. But whenever it is, Jesus, maybe it's now, maybe it's later this week, but but we want to formally invite you. We're not going to try to control you or tell you what to do, but we're going to invite you to that space. And we're going to believe. You're just going to take what's around us. Those jars over there, you'll just take, fill those jars up with regular water. We don't don't need something we don't already have. You're going to use the ordinary things in our lives to do something extraordinary. And your kingdom's going to come, and we're going to know joy and laughter and peace. So, Spirit of God, show us what we need. (laughs) And then, Jesus, we invite you there. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.